Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. And I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Today, it is my great pleasure to bring Dr. Michael Klein to the podcast. Dr. Klein began his academic career in medieval history as an undergraduate at the University of Chicago and then in graduate school at Princeton as a Woodrow Wilson Fellow. He is returning to those interests in retirement studying the life and work of St. Peter Damien. Dr. Klein served the Children's Hospital of Michigan in Detroit for nearly 40 years as Chief of Pediatric Surgery, Director of the Pediatric Surgical and Critical Care Training Programs, and Surgeon-in-Chief. His swan song in clinical surgery was two months in Liberia with Doctors Without Borders. Among his services to pediatric surgery were the founding of the Organization of Children's Hospital Surgeons-in-Chief, the establishment of critical care training programs in children's hospitals, and a greater visibility and integration of children's surgery with the American Academy of Pediatrics. Dr. Klein was the only surgeon nominated to run for president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and that was actually when I got to know him during his candidacy. He has received both the Clifford Gruley Award and the William Ladd Medal, awarded by this section on surgery from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Today, my gift to you is the words of Dr. Michael Klein. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm just fine, Leah. How are you? I'm great. Looking forward to doing this. And it's really been a pleasure getting to know you. And I just wanted to share some things. I am saving this podcast. We're doing it in October, but I'm saving it for December 23rd when I can share this as a gift to other pediatricians. So no pressure. No pressure. Okay. I won't take any pressure. By the way, I have to, uh, I have to take the opportunity, though, to congratulate you on joining the board of the AAP. Thank you. That's incredible. It's not just what you've done, but it is also the vote of you know, your peers that got you there. I think that's wonderful. Well, thank you. I I had stiff competition because Andy Garner is also a wonderful human being. And so I'm grateful. I'm looking forward to it. So thanks. Well, let's dive right in. You are a pediatric surgeon, and I think you're a very unique person and really are a pediatrician at heart. Not that you can't be both, but, and I know you've done all kinds of mission work and uh, I just thought you could share a little bit about how you got into pediatric surgery. Well, it's it's really interesting. I think I was a surgeon at heart, although Bob Isant was the pediatric surgeon in Cleveland when I was in medical school there. And I kind of thought that that was pretty interesting. But the real thing, it's very interesting. I was doing a residency in Boston, which I thought was terrible and wasn't teaching me anything. So I signed up at Boston Children's to spend a year in the lab with Judah Folkman and a year on the wards as a junior resident. 
And that was a fabulous experience. And after those two years, there was kind of like no choice. I was just going to be a pediatric surgeon. Um, and I certainly have enjoyed you know, every moment of it. It's been grand. Well, I think kids that have you as a surgeon are probably very um, lucky to have you. And tell me about a little bit about some of the work that you've done overseas. Oh, you know, that was interesting. It's when I finally stepped down as a surgeon-in-chief at Children's in Detroit, I was able to do some of that. And um, I made five trips with an organization called KenyaRelief.org to a, um, a mission in Magori uh, in Kenya, which was fascinating and interesting. And then about two years ago, I had the opportunity to do what I always wanted to do, which is to spend um, two months with Doctors Without Borders in Liberia. And, and that was only because they only have one children's hospital, and that's in Liberia. So for the most part, with MSF, you have to be able to take care of adults and children. And I was just not prepared to take care of adults after 40 years of dealing only with children. But it was gratifying. It had the usual gratification for me of the only thing I had to do was take care of patients. You know, I had to see patients in the clinic and operate. And it had the other marvelous thing of there were no competing interests. So it wasn't like I had to go to a meeting or go to my son's soccer game or, you know, meet somebody for dinner. Um, that's what I was there for. And it did. So it, it's remarkably liberating to be able to work like a surgeon in that setting it was amazing. You know, the people were wonderful. We got to meet people from all over the world who were working there, as well as the patients who were Liberians. Well, and I, I was able to go to Ecuador on a couple of occasions, and I'm just struck by, one, how fortunate we are with the medical system that we have. I think we take it for granted. You know, I was also in Mexico, and I mean, if you could find a blood pressure cuff, you were lucky out in the rural areas. And you know, to come by a CT scan, even from a rural area, you know, in the United States is, you know, commonplace. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think there are the two medical inventions, which have been the greatest contribution to less developed countries, they call them LIMCs now, low and middle income countries, um, have been oxygen saturation monitoring and ultrasound. Uh, I mean, you know, an x-ray machine or a CT scan is a clumsy, expensive, huge thing, difficult to maintain. You can carry around an ultrasound machine in your pocket now. Um, and, you know, knowing the oxygen saturation is a monitoring device is just an incredible know, advance. Those were two things that weren't there when I started and, you know, only began. And I've watched them grow and become incredibly important. Well, and you and I are old enough to remember, certainly when I was a resident, you know, we didn't have CAT scans. And I think ultrasound was relatively new. You know, prior to that, you know, if you were going to diagnose uh, intussusception, um, 
or, you know, some other bowel obstruction. I mean, you were relying on regular x-rays and maybe some contrast. Right. No, exactly. Exactly. There, there, have, there have been advances that have been good for everybody. I think it's wonderful. Well, the other thing and where you and I crossed paths was through the um, American Academy of Pediatrics. And my just disclaimer is there, I'm not doing this on their behalf. I mean, this is my own podcast. I'm not getting any kind of funding. But I always take this opportunity to give a big shout out because it has been I don't know, life-changing for me. I love the AAP, both um, my state chapter was kind of how I got in. And then, you know, I kind of drank the Kool-Aid and, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to leave it, you know, in terms of um, being involved in national and, and continue local as well. So tell me about how, as a pediatric surgeon, you got involved in the AAP, which is primarily general pediatricians. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. There has, so the surgical section of the AAP was actually the first specialist section. Um, and when pediatric surgery was developing, and this is just the 50s and 60s, this is not ancient history. Uh, pediatric surgeons were not accepted by general surgery. Every The general surgeons felt they could do that. There was no need to specialize in children. And the American Academy of Pediatrics gave the surgeons a home, and they created this affiliate membership, which is re- really a full membership, and you're a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics. They created this affiliate membership for surgeons um, who didn't have boards in in pediatrics. Um, And that, you know, was an incredible move towards the legitimacy of pediatric surgery. At any rate, because of the surgical section, and just membership in the surgical section. Uh, actually, it was Maury Ziegler who asked me to be the surgical liaison to the Committee on Hospital Care, which I hadn't heard of. And I don't think I actually got it the first time, but the second time. So I served on that. And that kind of opened my eyes to what was going on. And then when... Um, as part of accepting surgeons into the academy, they had formed the surgical advisory panel. And that was first under Arnold Corrin's leadership with a place at the board meetings, not as voting board members. But at any rate, the, um, when Andy Hotaling ended his time as the chairman of the surgical advisory panel, um, I was elected to that position. I certainly agreed that I had wanted to run. And I think I learned about that through the very first ALF annual leadership forum, which was held in Chicago. And it was by attending the ALF that I started to learn what the academy was all about. And I was like very impressed. So when the opportunity came, to do that, I was very happy to. And then through two terms as the uh, chair of the SAP, um, I learned more and more a lot about what inspired you. Um, And that's when I learned that, in fact, we were in a position to do more for the world than anyone else. 
and then the um and then for some reason also somebody said that oh wouldn't you like to be the chair of the section forum management committee which is what i'm doing now and so it's brought me full circle because it's now my job to be the chair of the annual leadership forum in 2021 so it has been a long trip and involvement, but I am passionate from both a medical point of view uh, as well as from a just a citizenship of the world point of view in terms of improving civilization and saving our world. Wow, tall order. Yeah, I would have to say, so the annual leadership forum for pediatricians and other folks who aren't familiar with that is a gathering of all the chapter presidents and vice presidents and then section leaders and probably some others I'm not thinking of, but it is the coolest grassroots opportunity that anyone, and you don't have to be a member of that group, can funnel up a resolution to bring something to the fore that you're interested and care about. And you know, it, I just think it's so empowering. And I was so moved. And it was so exciting to see democracy at its best. And I I loved that. And then I got involved um, after I was chapter president as the National Nominating Committee, which we have the, I mean, it's it's quite a responsibility to look for outstanding pediatricians to represent the academy as president, and what we look for is the president-elect, who would then move into the president position. And I think particularly in times like this year, um, with immigration and with COVID, our current president, Sally Goza, is, you know, she's all over the place. And, you know, the AAP carries a lot of weight. I mean, there's 67,000 pediatricians that move issues forward and speak for kids because they can't speak for themselves. So, you were a candidate for president-elect, and Michigan was super proud to have you run. And during that time, I heard you speak about why pediatricians are important people. And I mean, it almost makes me cry every time I think about it, because I came away from that thinking, I am doing such a cool thing. I'm a good person. And I think particularly right now with the pressures on pediatricians, whatever, whether you're a specialist or, or a general pediatrician, that once in a while, I think we need a morale boost. So I'm going to ask you to kind of give a short version of what, why it's wonderful to be a pediatrician. I'm happy to do that. I enjoy it. I certainly believe in it passionately. I have to say, I'd like to introduce it by saying um, three important things about the academy, which I don't think a lot of people realize. Uh, the first thing is the academy is completely apolitical, and we do not have a PAC or political action committee separate or joined to or in any way related to the academy. And that gives the academy entree to politicians. Um, other organizations that come to them have to make a donation to the senator before they get to talk to them. And we just have no strings. And 
we are probably the most respected lobbying group anywhere because people know the only thing we're interested in is children and that we're lobbying on their behalf. The other thing which I don't think a lot of people realize is that the AAP is responsible for most pediatric education in the world. And this is not just in this country, but around the world, the publications of the AAP and its policies and procedures make up a large part of public and private policy. It's absolutely, it's absolutely amazing. Um, and I think that we provide the substance as well as the interpretation. Anyway, but I would like to talk about, I mean, the fact of the matter is that we, most of the people listening to this podcast, are truly the most important force for change in the world. And I don't say that lightly. First of all, all of us, all of you now, since I'm retired from practice, are really the best human beings that civilization has been able to produce. We really have more walking around knowledge than anybody we went to high school with. We know more specific facts, disease presentations, disease scripts, drug doses, um, vaccine regimens. Uh, the, the people, our friends who went to law school, don't have to memorize any of that stuff. It's not just the knowledge we have, but we have to apply that every day to real human beings using clinical judgment. Um, we can't just like know the fact and plug it in. We have to distill it, separate it out, and apply it in context. And once we've made that judgment, we have to make a decision. And these decisions are sometimes life or death, but they are always made with incomplete knowledge and often have to be made at a moment's notice. Um, and that's, again, something which our friends who became software engineers or grocery store managers never really have to do. And if we add on top of that the technical skills that we've acquired, I mean, my general surgery comrades were amazed that I went into pediatric surgery just because they didn't want to have to start an IV in a child. I mean, if starting IVs, doing LPs, catheterizing bladders, I mean, even at the level of the pediatrician, and many pediatricians are now manually skilled from cardiology to radiology, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, and then we can take this one more step. And the other thing that we have to have in order to practice is courage. And it really takes a lot of courage to go into the office, see a patient, make a decision, and walk out and realize that you're going to be wrong, maybe as much as one time out of 10 or more, depending on what you're doing. And when you are wrong and you have to go back and do it again, or you have to apologize or keep working, that can only be done with courage. So I want you to stop and think about that when you wake up in the morning and realize, you know, that you really are great. And 
the next thing is, who are we serving with this incredible collection of achievements? And that is children. And children are really the most important force for human progress that there is. I think that whatever the question, children are the answer. And the evidence is in. If we want to improve the economy, if we want better symphonies or better jazz, if we want better athletic teams or better social relationships, the way to get them is to invest in children. And if we don't invest in children, then we get the problem. So it's you know, probably first brought out by Anda and Felitti in the ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Environments, where they discovered with data that adverse childhood experiences lead to earlier death and less success in life. And this kind of um, evidence has just been building in terms of early brain childhood development. You mentioned Annie Garner, who's one of the ones working, you know, specifically in this field. But it's not just in terms of health. Um, it's been described in economics that if you invest in uh, pre-kindergarten education, there will be fewer people in prison in your state and more industry moving into your state than if you don't have such a program. And even with the relatively recent information in epigenetics, the kind of toxic stress or adverse childhood experiences that we talked about actually affect the genome. And these things can be passed on. I mean, for, I mean, I was raised learning to laugh at Lysenko and the inheritance of acquired characteristics. But it turns out that there's actually something to it. And that um, it's our duty to future generations to improve the lot of children if we want our humanity to improve in whatever way you can think about it. Um, James Heckman, who's a Nobel laureate in economics, is famous for having described the Heckman curve, which not enough people realize that just shows that the earlier you intervene, uh, the bigger a change you will see in the adult. So the mantra is the first thousand days, the first three years. And the interesting thing is that we're the only ones who are there with the parent in the first three years. I mean, even quality pre-kindergarten for most children doesn't start until they're a year old. Um, and certainly if we're in regular school and kindergarten, we're talking about five years old where we've already lost the greatest possible chance for having an effect. So I think that we have a lot of opportunity as well as responsibility. 
Um, and it's not easy. It requires courage. It requires courage to confront parents who don't want to vaccinate their children. It really requires, people ask me about the AAP's stance on education and COVID and their desire to go back to school. And I've talked to teachers who are absolutely outraged that we would want to expose them to children. And yet, if we're going to defeat COVID, it's only because we're going to educate children. If children go to school and learn how to wash their hands, wear masks, and socialize appropriately, we're much more likely to win. Anyways, that, that's the diatribe, which I did not write out or rehearse, but it's become part of my persona. Well, I love that. And I think about um, when they talk about burnout as moral injury, that your words, your mantra are the antidote to moral injury. And honestly, it oh, makes me clumped. I mean, it makes me teary-eyed. <laughs> So glad there's somebody else. I thought only my mother used that word. <laughs> um, you know, I mean that. Um, you know that we make a difference, and for all the hard stuff. I mean, you know, sitting with a family of a child that's dying is hard stuff, and sitting with a child who is suicidal is hard stuff, and not knowing that when we see a two-month-old with a fever and send them home from our office, that I'm up at night like, is this sepsis? Are they okay? And I've got to bear that. And th that is, I think, unique in that we carry that around and that this huge amount of compassion is what makes us who we are. And um, it's October when we're recording this. I was in a car accident last night. And I, while I got good care in the emergency room, I was struck by the brevity of the exam. And I think once they knew I was a physician, then I heard just medical lingo that they were going to do a, a multimodal treatment of pain meds. And I don't think anybody ever asked me how I was. And I was totally freaked out. I had just... I mean, I was a crazy person at the scene. And um, I think that pediatricians, we are very tuned in to our parents and our kids. And, you know, I don't, pediatricians aren't fancy people. I mean, you know, people pee and poop and puke on us. And, you know, we're pretty humble. And I, that was a reason honestly, that I went into pediatrics is because I love other pediatricians. And not to say I don't love my other colleagues, because that's, you know, I mean, I do, I respect physicians, but I think pediatricians are unique. And the other thing is that we have to take care of kids from birth. And often, I mean, we see kids up to age 21. That's a huge amount of stuff we need to know. And yeah. And to stay tuned in and, you know, it's what an infant needs and what a 21-year-old needs are very different things. And yet we have to be adept at knowing the difference and care about the parents. You know, yeah. it's, not, it's and, and I think our family practice colleagues, you know, also because they do such comprehensive care of families, 
probably share some of that too. But I love being a pediatrician. I can't imagine having chosen any other job. Although on a really busy, crappy day, I think about being a florist. (laughs) Well, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, one of the people ask me if I miss surgery, which I do. I do miss surgery. On the other hand, if when you're practicing, and this is one of the things that takes courage, as I say, there's always one patient you're worried about. You have one patient in the hospital or your practice where you made the decision, and it comes up in the back of your mind a couple times a day. Um, and the, what you, the freedom you get when you retire is that you don't have that anymore. And that pressure is off. And I think that's really interesting. And so one of the things we can do is to bear that pressure. I mean, that's, you know, true at all levels. But the whole business of needing to know the panoply of what happens over the course of a lifetime is amazing. It it reminds me of a Judah Folkman story, a story that Judah Folkman told about this was about a surgeon and a scientist but we can make this an internist and a pediatrician and they're standing by a river and there's all these drowning people flowing down the river and the internist jumps in and pulls one out and jumps in and pulls one out and the pediatrician is like standing there with his hand on his chin And the internist looks at him and says, what are you just standing there for? Why don't you come help me save these people? And the pediatrician says, I think I'm going to wander upstream and see who's throwing them in. Because, in fact, most of those terrible things that happen to adults really start in childhood and ought to be dealt with there. The other thing I want to bring up for for your listeners especially, is the fact that I don't think pediatricians are treated entirely fairly for their value. Um, Nobody will ever, unfortunately, recognize the value as I explained it, which is the true importance. But for medical systems, pediatricians are crucial. If you go to any insurance product or any hospital, what you will see on their home page is a mother and a child. Okay, so what, and the person who makes the decision as to which health plan to go with is the mother based on who's going to take care of the child. And that's the only way people get into the health system. And yet, the health systems make all of their dollars taking care of the father's heart attacks and prostate cancer. So we have an important role to play just in our own, if you want to call them micro economies, that needs to be recognized more. Well, we had a situation recently where we had some new physicians come on board and they couldn't even get pulse oximeters and nebulizers and It took a while, and I'm like, these are cheap. Why can't we have, I mean, you know, we're an industrialized nation. We should have these without question. 
or vision machines. Yeah, they cost something, but seriously. And, you know, and then we can't get paid for doing all the behavioral health screens that we do that take a lot of time. And, um, you know, people are quibbling over paying, you know, $10. And, you know, and the CAT scan that I had for my car accident is going to be thousands of dollars. Now, I'm not saying I didn't need that, but, you know, by comparison, what we're asking for in pedi- pediatrics is pretty cheap. We work, we, we, we work cheap. <laughs> and the cost of not doing it. The cost of not doing the visual screen later in life, the cost of not doing the behavioral screen is immense. We have more people in prison than any other country in the world. And if we had more behavioral screening, we could have less of that. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard for people to sometimes see, you know, that prevention, you know, on the front end. So I think one of the things maybe to sort of end with is hope because and hope and encouragement and inspiration and that, you know, being involved. I mean, you're a unique surgeon, I think. And again, I'm not saying my other surgical colleagues aren't involved, but I think you have the heart of a pediatrician for sure. Um, But, you know, what are your what are your words as far as you know, why it's important to be involved in chapters and, and nationally where we can? Oh, I think that, well, first of all, it's incredibly important to be involved nationally because we actually have an effect and can have an effect. It's much more important to be involved on a chapter level. In this country still, most of the important decisions are made on the state level. Um, if you only go to COVID, the restriction of COVID, you know, that was left to all of the states. Governor Whitmer and what she did was incredibly important to controlling the disease in Michigan, which other states were not able to do. And all of the important things like the vaccine registries, the regulations, the requiring of vaccination for schools, the county health services to provide services to children. And there are more poor children in the country. Childhood poverty is an incredibly important problem. So all of the services that are administered are all on the state level. And even when they're national programs, Um, They're administered through the states, and that's done through not just the state senators and representatives, but the regulatory bodies, the insurance boards, Um, your chapter executive director is not a secretary. That person is on the Hill. They're at your state capitol talking to people like that. Um, whom we can reach. And and they're absolutely crucial. Well, and I think with the at the heart of what we do is about kids and that part you talked about at the very beginning about being apolitical. It's not about being with one party or another. It's about what's best for kids. And if we keep that at the heart of what we do, we make the right decisions. And, you know, if I think you said at one point, if every choice and every decision we made 
we thought about how it would affect kids, we would make the right decisions. Absolutely. And you're certainly right about politics. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, before Governor Whitner, we had Governor Snyder, who was really pretty pro-child, you know, from the other party. Um, I really think that it would be very nice to go back to issue-oriented politics and, and make decisions like that. And if we base them on children, we would certainly be far ahead. So I think my my plea would be for listeners, wherever you are, whatever state, join your chapter. It's it's honestly relatively inexpensive, maybe, I don't know, 15 lattes, <laughs> if that. Um, you know, it's 100 to $150 maybe. And, you know, the lobbying, even if you aren't actively involved in the chapter, your funds support lobbying and advocacy and programs that are important. And we take issues from the grassroots level up to national and national back. And, you know, again, that's why I was interested in being district chair, because I think it's really important that the chapters have that voice because national AAP wouldn't be what it is without the chapter. So we are inextricably linked and important to one another. So I think my final Merry Christmas and happy holidays to folks out there is, you know, you're a wonderful person. If you're a pediatrician, if there are others out there listening, love your pediatricians and, uh, you know, that you taking care of kids is the most important thing that you do. And I don't know if you have any other parting words for us, Mike. No, I, I, I really don't. I think you said it quite well. Whatever your issue or problem that you think is most important, the answer is children. And it's only with children that we're going to make it better or solve it. Great parting words. So happy holidays to all of you out there. And thank you so much, Mike, for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. So I am truly pumped to have had Mike Klein here today, and I hope you can appreciate why I saved this as a Christmas gift for you. I love what he says about pediatricians and taking care of kids, and it just fills me up. So I wrote a gazillion notes, but I'm going to try and just capture a couple of things that he said that I thought were important. So the first one is three important things he said about the American Academy of Pediatrics. One, that we're apolitical, there's no PAC, and we just represent kids, not not political parties. Number two, we are respected lobbyists with our only interest being in the welfare of kids. And number three, we are the guidepost for pediatric education in the world internationally with publications, policy, and procedures that often set the policies worldwide. The things he said about pediatricians, one, we are truly the most important force for change. Number two, we are the best human beings walking around. Our knowledge is huge. We know that. We know lots of facts. We can apply them to human beings clinically. We make decisions quickly that may be life or death or small at a moment's notice. 
We have technical skills like putting in IVs and LPs and bladder caths. And we have courage. We see patients. We make decisions. We might be wrong one time out of 10. And if we're wrong, we have to keep at it, apologize, and keep going. He said, you are great, and you are. So who do we serve? Children. The most important thing that we have to make the world a better place. He said children are the answer and that anything that we do on their behalf makes the world a better place. We need to invest in kids. Um, The return on investment for pre-kindergarten support decreases incarceration. And what happens in those first three years is of vital importance. He talked about the James Heckman, Heckman curve and that early intervention makes significant changes in adult life with the first 1,000 days and the first three years being the most important. He talked a lot about toxic stress and how it actually can change our genetics and that our work that we do will save humanity. I think that's our parting words. You're amazing. You do good work. What you do matters. And we do it for kids. And that's the most important thing we do. So join your chapters. Join the National AAP. Be advocates for kids. And keep doing what you do every day. Happy holidays to you all. And thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I really enjoy doing this. It is a blast. And I look forward to any suggestions that you have about any topics that you think would be helpful or speakers that you know of. Pass them my way. Take care and be well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are, and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and welcome all feedback, ideas, and suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then, when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.